We're opening God's Word this evening to the book of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, and we'll begin reading at chapter 4 and verse 1, and we'll read through the fifth verse of chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, we'll read through the fifth verse of chapter 5. The text is verses 13 through 18 of chapter 4, and we won't be reading that a second time, so... I call your attention especially to those verses. This is God's holy and inspired word. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified." For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia, but we, we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more, and that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we command you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. Then begins the words of our text for this evening, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. But of the times and seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night for when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light, and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. And we'll stop there in the reading of God's word. The text I said is chapter 1, 13 through 18. 
And I've chosen to preach on this tonight, not only because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is referred, referenced here in, in verse 14, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Not only because of its connection to the resurrection, but because it sets before us the Christian hope. And we all need to be reminded of the Christian hope. In the last month and a half, there have been three deaths in our congregation. It's not strange or wrong for us to think about what happens to them when they die. And the scripture is going to tell us tonight what happens to them when they die. And that's a beautiful thing for us to think about. There are others in our congregation, some of you here tonight, some who can't be here anymore, who are in the twilight years of their life. And tonight, I remind you, the Word of God reminds you of your hope. And the comfort that there is in this hope, look at verse 18, wherefore comfort one another with these words. We have to talk to each other about this. Talk to those especially who face death and encourage them in the hope that we have. Besides this, there are others of you who live with grief as your daily burden because God has taken a loved one or a friend, or perhaps even a child, maybe even an unborn child, from you. And you need to know tonight, what is the Christian hope for those who sleep in Jesus? And as most of us are aware, a young father in our churches this week died of cancer, left behind a widow and a number of children, And so we need to know from Scripture the Christian hope. Paul emphasizes that at the beginning in verse 13. I would not have you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be left in the dark about this. I want to bring God's Word to you. I want to tell you what the Christian hope is. So that, verse 18, you can comfort one another with these words. One of the important things for us to see about this passage tonight as we begin is that it does not forbid grief. It does not forbid grief. When Paul says in verse 13 that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope, he is not saying that we mayn't grieve. In fact, the Bible tells us that it's good and it's healthy for us to grieve. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2, it's better to dwell in the house of mourning than in the house of feasting. Because there we learn of the brevity of our own life, and there we learn to fix our eyes on things eternal and not things earthly and carnal. So don't let anyone tell you that there should be no tears at a Christian funeral. Rather, our grief should be different to the grief of the unbeliever, to the world's grief. And that's because we do have hope. There is more than pain in our grieving. As believers with the eye of faith, we look beyond the present, the death and the grave, to the eternal. 
the resurrection and the life everlasting. And the words of the text tonight are intended to comfort you in your grief and encourage you in your grief. There is a real joy, a real joy deep in the soul that we can have in grief and in death. So it's with those things in mind that I've chosen tonight to preach on these verses. As we read through this chapter, it seems as though when Paul comes to verse 13 that he changes the subject, that he comes to an entirely new subject. But we shouldn't miss the connection to the preceding verses. In the preceding verses, he's talking about living the antithetical life in sexual purity, in brotherly love, and doing this as a witness to unbelievers. By living the antithetical life, we leave a witness. By living in brotherly love, we leave a witness to the world. Jesus says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. When he gets to verse 13, he begins to talk about eschatology. The Bible's teaching on the last things. First, he treats the subject in the verses that we consider tonight of personal eschatology. And then in the next chapter, cosmic eschatology. What's the connection? Well, the connection is this. That what we believe about things to come should shape our life in the present. And the hope that we have as believers is a part of the great witness that we leave in this world so that we grieve differently than the world does. So this also is a part of our witness and a part of our living differently than the world around us. Let's consider these verses tonight under the theme, Our Hope for Those Who Sleep in Jesus. Our Hope for Those Who Sleep in Jesus. Notice with me first the content of this hope, second the foundation of this hope, and then third the response that this hope produces. In these verses, Paul is obviously answering a question that the church in Thessalonica had about something that he had taught while he was with them. From the book of Acts, chapter 17, the first nine verses, we, we learn about Paul's visit to the church in Thessalonica. He was only there for about three weeks before he was driven out of town because of persecution, and he fled to Berea, and then he had to go on from Berea as well. When he left Berea, Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica. And so Timothy went back to Thessalonica to labor with them there. And then later, Timothy came and caught up with Paul on this missionary journey in the city of Corinth. And when Timothy came to Paul in Corinth, he had questions for Paul that came from the church in Thessalonica. And so Paul writes this letter, which is probably the first of the New Testament books written Paul writes this letter from Corinth back to Thessalonica where he had been just recently. And he had only labored there for three weeks. 
In those three weeks that he was there, Paul had taught them about eschatology, about the, especially the second coming of Jesus Christ and the end of the world. And the new converts in Thessalonica embraced that teaching, especially because they were being persecuted. But their embracing of the truth that Jesus was coming again was a cause for concern in the congregation as well especially in two areas. One of them is referenced here in verse 11, but you find it elsewhere, both First and Second Thessalonians. And it's that some of the people in Thessalonica thought that Jesus' coming was imminent, that he was going to come very, very soon. And so what had they done? They had stopped working so that they weren't even earning money to eat anymore. And then they became not just lazy in the congregation, but They became busybodies in the life of the church. And it was a disruption in the church. So Paul says here in verse 11 that you studied to be quiet, to do your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you. The way to be prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ is to be busy in the calling that God has given you and to do it to his glory. That was one question that arose in the church as a result of Paul's teaching concerning the coming of Christ. The other was, and that's what's answered in these verses, what about the Christians who fall asleep or die before Jesus returns? Aren't they going to miss out on the coming of Christ? And that's the question that Paul is answering in these verses that we consider tonight. There was a certain ignorance. Paul says that in verse 13. I don't want you, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. But this ignorance was not a willful ignorance, rather, it was simply this that Paul's uh, teaching time in Thessalonica was very limited. There was only so much he could teach these new Christians in this new church in the three weeks that he was there. And so he laid the foundations of the gospel, but there were implications of the gospel that they didn't yet understand. And it's Paul's purpose in writing this section to build on what he's already taught them. And we'll see that as we go along. So the question is, what did they believe? What did they think in Thessalonica? Well, the majority of the saints in the church at Thessalonica had come from either Roman or Greek background, and they would have believed either one of these two things concerning those who die. Either they believed that when you died, you were annihilated. That was the end. That there was no spiritual aspect to man. And so there was no more consciousness beyond the grave. Or they believed that all, good and bad alike, went to a shadowy underground called Hades where worn-out souls stumbled around in darkness and oblivion. And so they believed that if you died, you were going to miss out on something that would happen here on the earth, the return of Christ. That thinking, that thinking of the unbelievers is described by Paul as the cause of their sorrowing with no hope, or their hopeless sorrowing. Now let's understand what is meant here by the word hope. Hope is not only something that you do 
in a verb form. It's not just a longing or a desire of the soul, but, but hope, our hope is something that's real and that's objective, a reality that is in front of us. And these sorrowed with no hope because there was nothing to hope for beyond death. Isn't that true of the day and age in which we live today? A day of materialism, a day of pleasure, a day of living for the here and the now. And so, if you even listen to the funerals of the rich and the famous, they'll speak of heaven in earthly terms as the best of what's here on the earth. The things that you like most here on earth you have in heaven because they can't think beyond the earth. That's a hopelessness in death and the grave. And you see this hopelessness also in the fear of death that there is and the the efforts that are put into science and medicine to prevent death because there is no hope apart from Christ. And now these Christians in Thessalonica lacked a complete understanding of what would happen to them personally at death, personal eschatology, because they didn't connect the dots, we might say, between what Paul had taught them already and their own death. And that's what Paul is wanting to do here, to connect the dots from what will happen to you and me as Christians when we die to the gospel what happened to Christ. These Christians in Thessalonica, and they are Christians, he calls them in verse 13, brethren. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. They grieved with a kind of hopelessness because some in the church had died before Jesus' return. They thought that their fellow believers would miss out and that they, verse 15, would prevent them. Notice that in verse 15. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Prevent is a word that we use, but we don't use it in this sense. It's an old English word that really means to go before or to have an advantage over. And he's saying, we which are alive and remain at the return of Jesus Christ do not have an advantage over those who die. It's not like it's better to be alive when Jesus comes than to have died before he returns. And he sets before them the wonderful hope of the Christian faith, which we should hear, believe, and use to comfort one another. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. There are five aspects of the Christian hope here in this passage. And they are five things that are true for every believer who dies. Five things. And these are the five things that we should encourage and comfort one another with. The first is this, that 
the souls of believers at their death immediately pass into a conscious state of glory. At death, the souls of believers immediately pass into a conscious state of glory. And in that, they are freed from sin and the effects of sin. Or we could say, delivered from the old man of sin, what Paul calls in Romans 7, the body of this death. So that there's no more struggle with sin. Now, that's not explicitly stated here in these verses. It's not on the foreground in these verses. But it's certainly the answer of the Reformed faith and the confessions. This is what the Heidelberg Catechism says, that the souls of believers at their death do immediately pass into glory. And it's certainly implied here in what Paul says, especially in verse 14. Look at verse 14. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Now he's connecting the dots to the gospel. And he's saying what happened to Jesus Christ is what will happen to you and to me as individual believers. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. This is what will happen to you. And then in the second part of the verse... These souls, he says, are the ones that will come with Jesus. And certainly that implies that Jesus bringing these souls with him means that they are already with him before his return. So when Jesus said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise, when Jesus said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, he was speaking of what would happen to his soul at death. And now if we believe that concerning Christ, that's true for us as believers. And that's a wonderful hope that we have for those who die in the Lord. That their souls consciously enter into the presence of the Savior, free from sin. What a glorious thought. And that means this, that when we grieve, we certainly grieve because we lose something when a loved one is gone. But we don't have to grieve for them because they gain something. And isn't that the way the Scripture describes death to us in Philippians chapter 1? The Apostle Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so he says, I'm stuck in this, in this strait, this this uh, decision place between two things. I have a desire to depart and to be with the Lord, which is far better. I'd rather be with Him. But I also, for your sakes, want to stay here and operate as an apostle and a gospel preacher. Another beautiful passage that sets that before us is Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And then he speaks of the earthly house of this tabernacle. He says, In this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon which with our house which is from heaven. And then a little later, he says, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. 
That's the Christian hope. The first aspect of it here. We, a couple of weeks ago when we buried a member of the congregation, had a message from Psalm 17, verse 15. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. That's our hope, to be with the Lord and to be like him when we see him. Comfort one another with those words. Say those things to one another. The second aspect of our hope here has to do with the body, what happens to the body of believers at death. We do know what happens to our bodies. They begin from the moment of death to decay. You remember when Jesus came to the, la- to, to the tomb of Lazarus? Four days he'd been dead. He says, open the tomb. And they're, no, no, it's going to stink. Open the tomb. And they open the tomb. And so we put bodies in the ground. Decaying begins and it proceeds, the Bible says, until we return to the dust from whence we came. James says that it's as though we mown down like the grass, Psalm 102, the place thereof shall know it no more. Where once a person stood, you can't know it anymore. Cemeteries, just fields of grass where the dead are buried. But Paul here uses a metaphor to describe that. And it's the metaphor of sleeping. He does in one phrase use the word dead at the end of verse 16 and the dead in Christ shall rise first but the three other times he references the dead here he uses the word asleep them which are asleep verse 13 also them which sleep in Jesus verse 14 and then at the end of verse 15 we shall not prevent them which are asleep asleep and this is language that the Bible uses concerning the bodies of believers in the grave. It's not talking here about soul sleep, but it's speaking here of what happens to the body, and it's a very positive picture and metaphor. It's one that's never used to describe the burial of unbelievers. Only believers fall asleep in Jesus. In Jesus. Notice that. Otherwise, there's torment, no rest for the wicked. They bear the sting and the curse of death in their souls immediately upon death. But in Christ, we fall asleep. Our souls entering his presence, our bodies sleeping in the grave. And you know what that implies, doesn't it? We'll be woken up. There will be a great awakening day. When you went to sleep last night, you expected to wake up this morning. And that's what happens when we lay our bodies in the grave. We expect that Christ will come on that great day and wake us up. 
And that's the third aspect of our hope here. That is the return of Jesus Christ. Paul describes that for us in verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. That is, Jesus Christ himself will come. This is what we call the parousia, the appearance of Jesus Christ on the clouds of heaven. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven. And he will descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Christ will return with much noise. This passage, especially this verse is very popularly used by those who teach a pre-tribulation rapture. That is, that Jesus Christ is going to come and secretly rapture from the earth all the believers that are living at that moment, and then there'll be a seven-year period before he comes again the second time to establish his earthly millennium, a pre-tribulation rapture. I don't want us tonight to get distracted and answering that, but I simply want to say this. There's nothing secret about the coming of Jesus Christ here in verse 16. Noise. Noise is what it's all about. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. Noise. And Matthew tells us, Matthew 24, Jesus tells us that because of that noise, every eye will see him. The Bible doesn't speak of multiple future comings of Jesus Christ, but one great day of his appearance. And he'll come with noise. And Paul is talking here about the hope that we have for those who sleep in Jesus. Will they or will they not witness the final coming of Jesus Christ? He says we won't prevent them. We won't go ahead of them. Instead, at the end of verse 16, the dead in Christ shall rise first. When Christ comes from the heaven with that great noise, which is called here his voice, then we will be witnesses to them rising from their graves. That's his point here. What exactly the details of that day will be like, we don't know. The Bible tells us that this will happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. But this is our hope concerning those who sleep. They will not be disadvantaged. They too will participate fully in that great day of the return of Jesus Christ. And in fact, the Bible tells us they're anticipating that now. If you go to Revelation chapter 6, you see the souls of the martyrs under the throne of God crying out, how long, how long? Because they're waiting eagerly for the return of Christ, the avenging of the wicked and the perfecting of the church in the new heavens and the new earth. What a glorious day that will be. What a glorious reunion that will be. The reunion of the church militant and the church triumphant. The reunion of those 
who have gone before us and those who are alive and remain. A reunion of bodies and souls as those souls are brought consciously from heaven to earth, reunited with their bodies and brought up from the grave. This is our hope. Comfort one another with these words. The grave is not hopeless. It's been overcome. The fourth aspect of the hope that's mentioned here is the resurrection of the body. And this is presented as a a very public thing. That's in verse 16 as well. The Lord descending from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. And that's not intended to tell us about three different things, but it's really intended to tell us how strong and how powerful will be the voice of Jesus Christ when he returns. And this is how powerful it will be, that it will be a voice that brings to life those who are dead in their graves. The dead in Christ shall rise. Jesus himself says this in John 5, verse 28, All that are in their graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Powerful voice. Not just an announcement from heaven of his arrival and his return, but a powerful voice that will call the dead forth from their graves. Some to the resurrection of life and others to the resurrection of damnation. And as we look through the pages of Scripture, we've seen that powerful voice. It's the powerful voice that called Lazarus forth from his grave. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? And then Lazarus, come forth. But it's the same voice that calls us from darkness to light, from death to life, that comes to us in the gospel. Jesus Christ calling, effectually calling his own. On that day, there will be other things that take place. The judgment, the dissolving of heaven and earth and everything being made new. But none of that's here because Paul's purpose here is to set before the Thessalonians this beautiful, positive truth of the resurrection. What a marvelous thing that's going to be. Something that defies all science and human logic and is a uniquely Christian hope. Our bodies laid to rest in their graves. Or maybe something else happens to those bodies, blown apart by bombs. We brought together and raised to the new life. And it's interesting that in this passage, three times the apostle says, sleep, sleep, sleep. They sleep in Jesus. But when he gets to the resurrection in verse 16, he changes to those who are dead. The dead in Christ shall rise. The dead shall rise at the voice of Jesus Christ. 
this body will be raised. That's the way Job confessed it. Though after my skin's worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. That's our hope for those who have died in the Lord. You, of course, are very familiar with the passage in, uh, of the chapter, the greatest chapter in the Bible on the resurrection, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But listen to how that's beautifully described here. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. And then a little later in the chapter, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. The sound of the trumpet, the twinkling of an eye, They will be changed, and we will be changed, who are alive and remain. And then, one more thing, as to the Christian hope, verse 17, heaven. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Several things here, four things here about heaven. First this, all believers, we with them, those who are alive and remain together with those who return with Christ. We will receive glorified bodies and be changed just as they receive their glorified bodies in their resurrection. The essence of heaven will be this, that we will be with the Lord. Isn't that what Jesus said? That where I am, there ye may be also. There's nothing on this earth that even comes close to that, to being with Christ. And it will be forever so shall we ever be with the Lord. And you see what what Paul has done here? He's been talking about those who've already died, and now he's saying to the Christians who are alive and remain, and your hope is the same as theirs. All of us in the presence of Christ forever. Comfort one another with those words. But now the question is, how do we know this is true? And that's where the dots connect to the gospel in verse 14. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Paul is not saying to them here, you might believe it or you might not believe it. He's saying, no, when I came and preached to you, just as he does in 1 Corinthians 15, this is what I preached. This was the foundational element of the gospel that I preached to you, that Jesus Christ is risen. That's the good news. And that good news means that we have this Christian hope. 
and that we can be sure of our Christian hope. I would not have you ignorant, Paul is saying this, that truth has consequences. What you believe matters. Do you believe that Jesus is risen from the dead? Well, that means something for you. That's his point here. You remember in 1 Corinthians 15, there were some there who denied the resurrection of the body. Paul says, if you don't think that we're going to be raised, then why should you think that Christ is risen? He was a man too. And if Christ is not risen, Paul says to them, then this is the logic of it. This is where what you believe leads to. Truth has consequences. If Christ is not risen, the price for your sin is not paid. If the price for your sin is not paid, you are still in your sins. If you're still in your sins, you're guilty. And then you have no hope but in this life. And then you are miserable, of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead? You believe that. That's the foundation of your Christian hope. So death is not hopeless. The sting of death is gone. Death is no longer payment or the wages for sin. But death is a servant and a doorway to glory. It's a termination of the power of sin and the presence of sin. It's a deliverance from the curse and the consequences of sin. Because Christ died and rose again. We believe that. And the connection is this, that we are united to Jesus Christ as we believe. We are united to him. So what was true for him is true for us. What's true for him is true for us. That's in the language of the text when the apostle speaks of sleeping in Jesus and those who are dead in Christ. We don't usually think of our union to Christ that way. We usually think of it this way, that because he's alive, we're alive. But Paul says, no, you're still united to him in your death. Romans 8, not even death can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. So when our bodies lay in the grave, they are still united to Jesus Christ. He won't forget us in the grave. Because he's redeemed us, body and soul. We belong to him, body and soul. And we have a comfort for body and soul in life and in death. Not my own but his. That's the foundation. And the apostle calls attention to it in verse 15 this way, this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. That's a common way that the apostle, when he's writing in his letters, will say, this was Jesus Christ's own teaching. I don't say this by apostolic authority now, but I say this 
Because Christ said it. By the word of the Lord. In other words, it's commonly understood that this is what Jesus Christ himself taught to his disciples. So he verifies what I say, or I repeat what he says. By the word of the Lord. It's really a promise, isn't it, then? What is the Christian hope? We've talked about the different aspects of the Christian hope that souls pass immediately into glory, that bodies sleep in the grave, that Jesus Christ is coming again, that the dead will be raised, that we will have an eternity in the presence of Christ. And Paul is saying, that's Christ's own promise to you. So don't grieve as those who have no hope. What does this produce, this Christian hope? Well, let me explain what I mean by that first, because if you look at the outline uh, that was in the back of church, you'll see that I said hope produces hope, and hope produces faith. What I mean by that is the objective hope that is set before us here, the reality, what's true for every believer, now as you receive it and hear it by faith, your hope increases and your faith grows. And that fits with what Paul says here when he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I've laid the foundation in teaching you about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his return. And now, let me tell you about personal eschatology. What happens to believers who die? That's Paul's aim. And so faith increases. It comes strong, becomes stronger because the foundation of faith is the Word of God. And Paul is setting before them here the Word of God. And tonight the Word of God is set before you for you to believe. So that you say, believing the, Je believing the resurrection, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is what I believe is in my future. And then your hope increases as well. Hope produces hope. We don't grieve as those who have no hope. You hear this, and doesn't your soul tonight, doesn't your heart tonight, doesn't your mind tonight say, that's what I want? And you long for it. Doesn't it make everything in this world look pale? And passing, because this is what you want. This is your hope as a Christian. Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, they've begun to enjoy this eternal hope. They see him, and they're like him. And I want that as a child of God. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. 
we need that comfort. We need that comfort, especially when we're in times of grief, because in times of grief, we, we become focused on the sorrow, the sadness. What do we need? We need a fellow believer to come to us and say, here's our Christian hope. Your loved ones with Jesus. Jesus is coming again. There's going to be a resurrection. We're going to see him. We're going to be like him. We're going to live with him forever. Comfort one another with these words. And so what does that mean? You fill out a sympathy card. It's not just platitudes. I'm sorry for you. How sad. But this is our hope. This is our hope. The sting of death is gone. We die and we sleep in Jesus. He doesn't forget us in the grave. He comes again as the risen one to raise us and to take us with him to eternal glory. We need to talk about these things. Comfort one another with these words. Amen. Father, we're thankful for the glorious comfort that's ours in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that he will unite bodies and souls in that great resurrection day and that we will live with him in glory forever. And so again we pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.